think anti-racism starts with, with you, with us as people. Like so much of it is about doing like deep reflective work and holding up a mirror to yourself and things and looking in that mirror and saying, actually, how I've been complicit in, in this, you know. Welcome to a brand new season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sectors who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we speak to Martha Awajobi, CEO of JMB Consulting and founder of BAME Online. We talk to Martha about their efforts in anti-racist work and what drives her work, how leaders can be racially literate and how to avoid being complacent about racism. Before we get into our chat with Martha, our last episode was back in December. Um, Zoe, you've shared a report with me today on how working from home, uh, on working from home and some updated research from Nick Bloom of Stanford University that's, uh, that's come in since we last spoke. Yes, so two years into the pandemic, uh, working from home uh, is still causing lots of debates. Why do it? How to do it? How to manage a team when you're working remotely? Uh, And this research, which I'll uh, mention in a moment, seems to be very much on the button. Uh, A lot of people have seen uh, that thread the other week um, from Matt Smith, uh, which uh, shared lots of really thought-provoking ideas about working from home and the purpose of working in the office. And uh, certainly this issue still seems to be causing a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion. And on that note, this research from Nick Bloom of Stanford uh, showed some really interesting findings, which confound a lot of expectations and also assumptions people are still making about working from home. So, for example, there seems to be a bit of a conflict emerging uh, about uh, the amount of uh, working from home days that employees want. So that came out as uh, two days in the research where employers would prefer their teams to only have one working from home day. Interestingly, uh, working from home has led to a real increase in productivity, uh, so 7% higher relative to expectations, uh, and also a 4% increase in efficiency as well, uh, compared to working on business premises. So I think there's a lot here about the increased value of uh, working from home and indeed working from the office and the value that that offers to employees and where leaders may need to factor that into the decisions they're making about where people are working, how they're working, and indeed the the, the purpose of their organisations as well. Yeah, Matt's tweet talked about um, travelling into the office. He travelled two hours into the office just to sit in, in Zoom meetings with people that are working from home. And I think one of the dangers of that one day or a specific you must work one day from uh, from home is that most people, I would imagine, would try to make that a Monday or a Friday. Some people would probably try to make it a, a, a Wednesday. Um, you still create an office space that that sort of has a it'd be like a desert um, <laughs> on on the Monday and the Friday with nobody around and, and more people working from home. So it's it's a it's a tricky one, and I think it will be different for every business. But I, I just don't like that idea of of quantifying it. I think a, a, some guidance rather than a hard and fa- fast rule seems to be a better place to end up. It feels like a very weird metric to be looking at, doesn't it? It seems like a really old fashioned one uh, where surely we should be looking at metrics around outcomes and productivity rather than the amount of hours someone's actually sat at a desk and where that desk is. Uh, It feels like a very internally facing metric to me. Uh, And and on that note, a couple of things that I've noticed about how the discussion on hybrid working and indeed other ways of doing hybrid, whether that's services or fundraising is beginning to develop as well, is that I think that we're starting to look at hybrid a little bit too much in terms of um, a means to a, a means in itself an end in itself rather than actually being uh, a, a a vehicle um, so what I mean by that is that um, it's really just a, a way to offer people choice isn't it so whether it's that's employees or whether that is donors and supporters or whether that's people who are using our services uh, we need to see that as um, the way of doing things rather than the motivation. Hybrid is not an outcome. 
I mean, I've never met a donor who says, well, what I really want to do is be part of a hybrid fundraising event. Really, what they want to do is be part of an incredible event that's going to help them really give something back and to raise money for a cause that means a lot to them. And surely it's the same for employees as well. They're not necessarily saying, I want to be somewhere, I want to work for an organisation that offers hybrid. Yes, they'll be looking for flexibility, but surely what that looks like in terms of employee satisfaction is about a sense of belonging and an organisation that has a really clear purpose and really clear values and will make you feel uh, safe and is going to challenge you and help you you learn and, and grow. Again, it's not yeah. about the amount of hours that you're at your desk at home or your desk in the office. No, exactly. And it's about accessing the way that you want it to uh, or want to have it or even need to have it. You know, some people don't have the luxury necessarily of being able to travel into the office on that regular basis. And and, and certainly, you know, the pandemic caused a whole bunch of people to to, to relocate. So asking people to, to make changes again seems seems a bit odd. I think it. I think there's probably a um, a lesson to be learned way back when. You know, um, I'm sure some organisations still do. But I remember working for an organisation that had quite a stringent dress policy, as well, um, which shifted into very much um, dress for your diary. You know, if you've got meetings, dress appropriately for those meetings, where whoever they're with. And it's similar here, isn't it? If you've got a a day full of uh, of online meetings, stay at home. If you've got a day where you could usefully be part of a group working together in a in an office location, go to the office. I don't think it's as binary as um, switching from from one to the other. And if you do have that one day working from the home or from uh, for the office, um, uh, or a couple of days working from the office, um, how do you know that's going to be the day where you need to be there for for that? It just it's all a bit um, it's all a bit regimented for me. Agreed. We'd love to hear your thoughts on on hybrid and, and how you're uh, how you're coping with it. So do send us any questions or any responses through Twitter. Um, but now for our conversation with Martha Awajobi, we had a really fun and positive chat with Martha just a couple of weeks ago. You'll hear their smile in every single word of this interview, as well as some great advice about how to tackle uh, racism in your workplace. So without further ado, Martha Awajobi. We are very excited to welcome Martha Awajobi to start at the top. Martha is CEO of JMB Consulting and founder of BAME Online. They spent 10 years working in fundraising and philanthropy and now try to live their values of anti-racism, bravery, creativity and joy through their work dismantling systems of oppression in the third sector and beyond. Martha, we are so excited to have you here today. Welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That bio actually made me feel really good. Like I didn't feel awkward at all. <laughs> so, I was like, yeah, I really did that. Um, thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time to, to come on. And absolutely, all that success is yours and all those things that um, you and your colleagues have fought for. And, and actually, that was where I wanted to begin our conversation today. As, as a woman of colour, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the work that you've done through Charity So Why and then also all this other amazing work that you have you have really built that we're going to talk about in more detail today. I know that all of that in totality has really helped shift the conversation about racism in the sector. Clearly, there's a huge amount more to do, and you're going to be absolutely instrumental to all of that. But thank you so much to you and the rest of the team for starting that conversation. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for saying that. I always thought awkward when people say thanks for these kinds of things, because it does, it feels like a group effort, you know. I know when we spoke last, I was saying that if it wasn't for all of the people doing all of those kind of initial conversations and really building that theory, helping us to really understand the realities of white supremacy and imperialism, I wouldn't really be able to have said all of these things. Um, I think my generation definitely has a lot of uh, guts, uh, but we are, you know, 
just building upon the work that so many people have done before us. Um, so I can't take all of the thank you, but I'll take a little bit. It's <laughs> good, good. I'm pleased to hear it. Pleased to hear it. And one of the things that we talked about when we chatted yesterday was you've obviously come up through having this career in fundraising in, in the charity sector. If you could go back and advise your younger self, what would you tell them? Oh, I don't know. Do you know the thing is I like my, my younger self more than I like my older self, to be honest. So I always think that the words of wisdom I would give to my younger self is just like keep doing the cool stuff that you're doing because I was an activist when I was 11 years old. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think I, I'm trying to make my younger self proud of me now. Um, so, yeah, just keep being awesome. And thank you uh, for being awesome at 11 so that I can be awesome at 29. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Lovely. And if we just take a moment to talk about Charity So Why, because I know you were um, involved when when that started getting going. Um, obviously, such an amazing groundbreaking campaign and, and much needed right across the sector. When you look back at that time, what are your main reflections? Oh, gosh, it feels like such a long time ago, but it really wasn't <laughs> that long ago. I mean, I joined in 2019 when the campaign had already kind of started. They'd done the initial, you know, big kind of charity. So white getting the um, the conversation started in the sector about racism. Um, so I joined after it started and our goal at that point was just to get leaders to acknowledge institutional racism in their organisations. And that was bloody hard. <laughs> I think that was really, really hard. So I think what I learned from that is just how unprepared um, people were to kind of take on this mantle of dealing with racism or kind of even more like more arrogance that people thought they already they knew what they were doing or that, you know, by just hiring a few more people of colour into junior roles that they'd solved the problem and that kind of, you know, real kind of complacency, arrogance and just a real lack of racial literacy is what I saw from the sector. But what I saw from the group itself was the power that people have when they come together and when they don't conform to using the master tools, right? So we had Twitter on our side. We were able to kind of say things, expose organizations, um, and really kind of force organizations to respond to us uh, because they hadn't responded to their staff who had tried to use the good routes, the proper routes, the proper channels or whatever to make their voices heard. So we were able to kind of act on behalf of those people. Um, it's amazing what embarrassment can do <laughs> to leaders, right? Um, and that was our strategy really was, you know, these leaders had not listened to their organization. We would find out from their staff, um, you know, of what, what was going on. And then it was kind of a last resort. Um, but it was amazing kind of knowing that a group of really quite young people were able to blow open a huge conversation about institutional racism. We wrote the first position paper on COVID-19. Um, I feel like it felt like it was the first one in the country, but, but maybe not. But it was about kind of, you know, the, the charity sector's response to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which was, you know, uh, inspired by the paper um, or happened around the same time as the paper by Ubele Initiative that said nine out of ten um, charity uh, charities led by black and brown people would close without urgent funding investment because of you know the co compounding of COVID-19 so yeah it was it was <laughs> it was a huge learning experience like I think I found my voice I found my confidence I used to be a really crap public speaker if you can believe it um, but I started kind of growing growing that way um, but it, it really helped me to understand that there is a real appetite for this work um, Charity So White was a group of volunteers who were all going outside of their day job to kind of do this incredible stuff. And like we weren't resourced enough to be able to really take on like the learning that was needed from the sector. Um, and luckily, well, through an unfortunate circumstance of losing my job in the pandemic, but luckily for me, looking back, um, I was able to build a consultancy based on those gaps that I saw and charity so like those kind of gaps of racial literacy that because we all had day jobs we weren't able to really tackle um but a roundabout answer <laughs>
No, that's brilliant, Martha. Thank you. And for anyone out there who may not be so familiar with the term, can you say a bit more about what racial literacy is? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's basically a kind of an understanding of what race and race racism are. Um, I think often when we when I ask people what racism is, they might tell me the dictionary definition, which is interpersonal racism. But they don't aren't so clear on what like ideological racism means, institutional or structural racism means, what internalized racism means. Um, so we have a really kind of incomplete understanding of what race is, especially it's lacking in any kind of historical context. So most people think race is about skin color, but race has got nothing to do with skin color really. <laughs> it's about power, it's a system um, of power, it's a technology that is used. Um, in order to decide who has access to resource and who doesn't. Um, and that's actually like really important <laughs> for us to be able to understand if we are ever thinking about being able to, to dismantle it, right? And in order to really understand racism, you have to understand the, the history of colonialism, imperialism, right? People think that racism came before colonialism or racism became before slavery, but actually slavery, colonization, imperialism were happening and racism was then created as a way to justify this, right? And I think we're really doing a disservice to our anti-racism plans or whatever it is that <laughs> what people are using to tackle um, these quite existential problems. Um, so leaders, I think, are rushing into action plans when they can't even say white supremacy, <laughs> you know? And if you can't name the forms of oppression that we are that we're operating in, then what what chance do we have? And I think I have been very racially illiterate <laughs> at times in my life. I think I'm building my own learning. I never feel like it's complete. Every time I read something new about racism, I'm like, whoa, I've seen it in a completely different light. Um, but we have this kind of selective amnesia. There's an amazing writer called Kojo Karam who calls it selective amnesia about our imperial history and our imperial legacy and what that means for how our structure, our society is organized today. And I think often people think, oh, that's in the past, or it's got nothing to do with us. But actually, you know, the very foundations of knowledge, of morality, of technology, are all like enshrined in these, you know, logics of, of racism. Um, and when we talk about the charity sector, um, philanthropy, philanthropic imperialism was a huge part of that kind of project of, of imperialism. So we're really con deeply connected to this legacy of empire to a legacy of you know, imperialism, of racism, of colonization. Um, and we don't think about ourselves as part of that legacy. Um, so we're not really, I don't think we're really tackling anything, you know, <laughs> if we're trying to do anti-racist work without that level of racial literacy. And it's not people's fault. Like we were severely poorly educated. Uh, <laughs> you know, how many black people did you learn about in school that weren't Harriet Tubman or Martin Luther King, right? Like, is it any wonder that we think that only white people have contributed to our society, right? Um, and I'm trying to kind of build that, bridge that gap in learning and do it fast <laughs> because we need to, um, we need people to really kind of understand what, what it is that they're tackling. I think often people think they're tackling mean words when actually we're tackling huge systems, um, you know, that have been in the making for the last 500 years. Um, I feel like I could answer that question for years. <laughs> You're right, there's a lot to do, isn't there? And there also is a certain amount of, of pressure to do it now as well. And, and as you mentioned there, if we jump too fast to action, if we're going down the wrong path, then that may not be helpful. So if you're out there so talking to leaders now who are taking the first steps on that journey they are committed and they imagine they're someone who really does want to to do it really effectively how might someone like that best educate themselves and what are the first steps they should take on that journey yeah sure I mean the first step is listen to your staff of color they all have told you everything that you need to know already and what I find sometimes can be quite insulting is that I will get hired to come into an organization to tell them everything that their black staff was already telling them. Uh, but because my name is consultant, I get listened to, you know? Um, so actually listen to your staff, listen to the people. When they give you feedback, like they're not even like trying to tear down the organization. They're trying to give you constructive feedback um, in order for you to be better at your job. Um, so I always say start there. 
Um, I think anti-racism starts with, with you, with us as people. Like we have, it's not just about like doing, you know, having reading lists. Like so much of it is about doing like deep reflective work and holding up a mirror to yourself and think and looking in that mirror and saying, actually, how I've been complicit in, in this, you know, maybe I'm not the good person that I think I am because goodness is built upon racism. Uh, <laughs> we've got like a whole other section we can do on that, right? Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a process of decolonization, right? And I found this like really instrumental in like my understanding of how much work there is to do um, and how long it will take to do it and kind of the steps that you need to take. And I guess like it's kind of a linear process, but it's also not a linear process. At the same time, you need to be doing all of these things at once. And I'll take you through it because it's been really instrumental to like my understanding of what we need to do. Um, and it's by a Hawaiian, a native Hawaiian activist called Pokalani, who says that there are five stages in the process of decolonization. And so much of this is like decolonizing your mind, right? The first is re uh, recovery and rediscovery. It's that kind of learning and unlearning space where you discover the truth of colonization, like really understanding the history of white supremacy. And that's like the horrible, ugly, violent truth of our colonial past, right? Like, like we really need to understand like what's happened and dedicate yourself to learning the most disturbing parts of the mental kind of physical and spiritual aspects of um, loss that happened in the, the period of colonization. Most people, most leaders are not even ready or capable of, of like really kind of learning about that. Um, and the next part, which I think has been a very tough part for me, and it's a tough part for people of color and white people, and probably the part we will avoid the most is mourning, right? The part two, the second part is mourning, um, which is a social process. We are supposed to participate in deep mourning where we grieve what we've participated in, what we've experienced together, um, and kind of go through those emotions of anger, of uh, hurt, of despair, of grief. Um, but going through those emotions are like really crucial to the healing process. And you're supposed to make the connection between anger and sadness and a longing for freedom, right? Um, and that brings you into the next stage, which is the dreaming stage, which is arguably the most important stage, um, where you kind of explore this uh, impulse to, to, to move towards freedom, to move away from the oppressive systems that we have um, today. So that's about kind of imagining a world that isn't built around white supremacy, uh, decolonizing your mind and bringing in new ideas instead of recycling ideas introduced by colonial manufacturers. So when Audre Lord says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, what she's enduring is inviting us into that dreaming space to imagine a house that isn't made by the master's tools, right? Um, and then you commit. You establish your intention to manifest your anti-racist vision. Um, and then you go into action, which is selecting the steps that you want to take to make a meaningful change. And those first three steps are missed always, <laughs> I think. Especially when leaders are like, right, we have to do something now. Why would learning not be doing something? Why would mourning not be doing something? You know, it's integral to the process. And what I do a lot is kind of do these anti-racist workshops where I force people to learn and unlearn and to mourn together, you know, and to go through that process of like understanding our own complicity and white supremacy, uh, what it means for us, you know, whether it's elevated us, whether it's denigrated us. Um, and I think because we're rushing into action <laughs> before we've done any of the stages, like we are, yeah, we're, we're not in a place that we need to be in. Um, and I can even say for myself, like, I feel like I've just left the morning stage. Like I've just left like personally stage two <laughs> and I'm about to go into dreaming. Like I've not had the space to dream because I've been so angry. So like, uh, by my my learning right um but i had to go through that process and that's taken me years um but we have leaders who don't want to understand what racism is don't want to understand what it looks like in their organization don't want to talk to their black staff but then still want an anti-racism action plan that is based on eurocentric metrics i don't think so um so we need to think a lot bigger like than this kind of tick boxing like we've got our anti-racism strategy we've done our statement like this is deep soul-destroying work really you have to really commit to it otherwise you 
don't do it properly, do you, is my main takeaway from you know um, all those those much needed um, projects and I mean if I was a leader kind of going into that now and we talked yesterday about um, effort you know the amount of effort that needs to be involved um, to be truly anti-racist and to create an anti-racist organisation how would you perhaps describe that to some of the the, the leaders out there you know what what do they need to be aware of in terms of the effort that needs to come from them and their colleagues um I guess that white supremacy will not want you to challenge it like it will be it's it's putting yourself in a very vulnerable position uh if you're doing this work right you will lose you know funders you will lose colleagues <laughs> you will lose like a lot of people who are trying to maintain those kind of logics of white supremacy um i would say that no matter how much work you think you've done you've never done enough that, that's for myself as well right like none of us can ever do enough to undo the you know what was lost from the colonial project and also like what continues to be lost in order for us to live so comfortably in the west as we do today like we have to be exploiting people in the global south in order for us to enjoy the riches that we have today um so yeah for me it's always like you're never doing enough um, so you always have to keep going right you always have to keep checking in with yourself and you know going through that process of decolonization um it is very rare that i meet a leader of like kind of a mainstream white organization that is willing to do that really kind of deep soul destroying reflective work which sometimes means that they realize they're not best placed to do their job, or they realize that the reason that anti-racist work hasn't happened in their organization is because of them. Um, these are big existential, existential questions. But if you think that doing anti-racist work is not existential, then you have no idea what you're doing. And you need to go back to that learning and unlearning part, you know, that discovery and rediscovery part. Um, and it does sound very dramatic, what I'm saying, but it is dramatic. Um, you know, white supremacy, imperialism, capitalism, the cis heteropatriarchy, they underpin like everything that we exist in today. Like these are the, the you know, overlapping web of complicated systems of oppression that, that uh, mean life and death for people um, across, across the globe. Um, so yeah, it's important. It will always be important. You're never going to be doing enough. Um, I feel like that sounds very doom and gloom, but, but I've got a smile on my face. So. I was going to say, for the benefit of our listeners, there is a big smile across your face as you were talking. I about know. <laughs> I was going to ask. I mean, you, you sort of you, you mentioned when we caught up the other day. You mentioned the sort of the, the, the soul destroying, and I guess that's that. You know, on on their side, they're 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 calling you up. They're asking you to come in to talk about. I guess what they imagine in their in their minds must be a, uh, as you said, a, a bit of a tick box exercise. That this is something that we need to do. It's something that we need to address. When you leave the room, metaphorically or physically, when you leave the room, what's the conversation that's going on? Do you think you know how? how what's the hit rate of people that immediately call you back, or when you leave the room, you know that that organisation is going to come with you on the journey? what's the hit rate like oh, is that fair that's, that's a very interesting question uh, <laughs> i would say that once i'm in the room with people like i've got them yeah <laughs> all i need is a captive audience and like i think i'm a really good storyteller so i'm able to like you know weave a narrative that feels applicable to people's lives like i'm not like racism is happening over there and like actually we're standing in a puddle of it right now um i would say that often organizations come to me and they say i want diversity and inclusion work when i've never once in my life said i do diversity and inclusion like i just have to put it because i'm getting really sick of it um, and they kind of think that they're the same thing um what i will say is that i have organizations that come to me sometimes and they say oh do anti-racist work but don't use the word white supremacy don't say imperialism that's scary and I'm like, well, you don't want anti-racist work then. <laughs> what you want is for me to co-sign your racism or for me to put a mark, 
you know, of white supremacy light. <laughs> um, so I would say that I see a huge appetite for it. I see an appetite for it in the younger people, actually. Uh, not to like bring up this generational war, but like more like junior members of staff, I'd say, um, have a lot of appetite for it. But often I think leaders um, are not really ready for, or they don't know what they're getting into. Uh, I have a lot of respect for them that keep going <laughs> on the process with me. Um, but I'd say, yeah, it's a very, it's a very small percentage of leaders who like really want to do this. And even like I look at myself for like I don't even know like sometimes whether I'm doing the right thing, uh, whether I'm just doing white supremacy light myself. Um, do I understand like what it really means to dismantle white supremacy when I literally live in the epicenter of it? Like mm. you know, and and I think we need to be able to hold these things at the same time, like pushing forward doing this work, and at the same time like always questioning like is this the right work to be doing like where can we take inspiration from uh, those who are you know bearing this the brunt of kind of capitalist imperialist expansion you know uh native people in um hawaii native people in canada uh people who you know live in kenya in ethiopia who are doing this kind of you know completely different type of activism um I feel like I got lost a little bit in your question, but I would say, no, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's fair. I think it's, I think it's, um, it's such a time where where organisations where, where organisations where systems are, are sort of collapsing around our ears, really, aren't they? And I think leaders' roles in in how to navigate that are getting increasingly difficult. And we were seeing at the moment. Um, I will always try and get a football re- reference in, as, as we've said, but we're seeing at the moment with the, the 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 sort of dismantling of the oligarch empire within within Russia, for example, mm. the collapse of that fa- the, those foundations around their ears, but then around ours as well. So if you take the two football clubs that played at the weekend, for example, Chelsea and Newcastle, both owned by states where atrocities are happening. All of us implicit, complicit, sorry, in 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 that by you know, signing up to Sky and paying the money for football, um, watching the games, tuning in, and and years and years and years of not saying anything. There've been World Cups in Russia. Uh, there's you know one coming up in China. We've got the Qatar World Cup for goodness sake, you know. And I just watched the um, thing with Gary Neville on that. <laughs> I, I'm really getting into football. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and we've talked about this before, Zoe, and I know it's, a, it's it can be a sort of a flippant remark, but it's because of the because of the nature of football as a as a as a as a you know a huge percentage of the UK's population of the world population watch it it becomes a vehicle for conversation like this to take place and to happen and you see activists like Gary Neville and others we talked about Gary Neville on our Christmas podcast for example where that conversation is is coming to the fore through people through young the younger generation they're just going you did what now you let this go on your watch and all of that stuff coming through, I think is really important. So I'd like to think that when you walk out of the room, that leader is immediately saying, who are the right people in this organization to drive this forwards? Um, I will support them all the way. I will do all the learning that I need to do, but we need the right people in this organization to help us really figure out what this means for us. Uh, I'd like to hope that's happening too. I mean, sometimes it's definitely not for <laughs> It's like, how can we make sure that this person never comes into our organisation ever again? <laughs> um, but but what, what I have kind of come to understand is that it, it does take a little bit of time. Like, There's one organisation that I work with. Um, I've worked with them now. We're in our second year. I love them to pieces. They've got problems at leadership. Like, of course, lots of organisations do. Um, but over the course of working together, and like it's so hard to like find metrics of success for this type of work, right? Just the fact that we even try and measure with like KPIs is like problematic in itself because it's very Eurocentric way of doing things, right? But um, I had conversations with like my, you know, um, my main point of contact who is a more junior member of staff who said, I finally like working here. And like for me, like that mattered a lot like, more than like any other feedback that I got from like senior leaders, you know. Um, or we have staff saying, yeah, like I'm, I don't feel like I'm going to experience a microaggression every single time I walk into the office. And like, I guess that matters a little bit more to me than leaders' response, even though I know leaders are 
the people that hold the purse strings and the people that make those kinds of decisions. Um, I try my best to stay away from as much as like I'm talking to leaders. Like I try my best to my conversations. I hold them with a pinch of salt always. Uh, <laughs> and I actually I'm more interested in what the junior staff members have to say about their experience um, because that's why I'm doing it really. Um, yeah, we had this conversation this morning in a completely different context. But you know, why is our podcast called Starts at the Top? And and we set out to say that you know leadership starts at the top. If you if you can't get, we have conversations with people all the time about digital transformation, for example. And you know, you can imagine them sort of finding that too hard to cope with, and you know, pushing it to the side. But unless you have that top level support, unless they understand what needs to happen or at least have a, a beginning of an inkling as to what needs to happen, then that project, that transformation is, is never going to happen. Yeah. But we're not saying it's leaders on, on their own. You know, it's the people within the organisation that are prepared to stand up and take leadership on a particular issue, whether it's digital transformation, whether it's racism, whether it's, um, whether it's inclusion uh, for all sorts of different um, things. It's, it's, it's somebody that's prepared to take the leadership within that organisation and take that yeah take the organization on the journey i guess yeah and i think for me like leadership has been a bit of a a difficult one uh for me to wrap my head around because i started this company having never managed somebody in my life uh like and people were calling me a leader when i was at charity so why and i'm like i'm a fundraising exec like i don't know <laughs> you know and it's been a, it's been a very kind of big process for me, like wrapping my head around the fact that I'm seen as a leader. I don't want to be seen as a leader, but I am seen as a leader. So what am I going to do about that? You know, like actually, I'm I have a responsibility that comes with like that um, authority, I guess, that I have in the charity sector, which I wasn't expecting to, to have at all. Um, but I do have it, and you know, I've grown into it and realised that I'm the right person to have it, right? Um, and it's been really i think there are so many people that are leading this work uh who don't have the title ceo don't have the title director who are so much better placed to be leading their organizations than the people who are sitting around the trustee board or around kind of the smt um and so much of i guess the language of why organizations measurables metrics leadership productivity uh, professionalism um, creates this kind of yeah I guess framework where mediocre people get to the top <laughs> and people who are actually invested in like systems change and like being radical and transformative whether that be about racism or anything right are pushed out and end up having to start up their own consulting firms and then go into these organizations with the title consultant and say exactly the same things that they were saying before <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do i do remember being told by one organization that yeah, you can do all that but don't call it transformation and don't call it change because this organization has been through too much change through too much transformation it's like no you know it's like people are really afraid of like doing good and like being better um and hearing feedback and acting on that it's all like it's all quite alarming like the resistance mm. to everything <laughs> moving with the times it's but i guess you know this sec it makes sense like our entire sector is rooted in coloniality like tradition <laughs> is kind of you know the bread and butter of imperialism um so i'm not so surprised that there's resistance to change um but i always want better for our sector that's the thing like i'm like the sector's like biggest cheerleader but also as big as critic <laughs> I, I absolutely relate to that and I also wanted to say thank you so much for articulating so brilliantly that you know that that sort of coming to to terms almost or at least kind of owning your power as a leader because that's something is, that I definitely have felt as well I think when you are a person of of colour there isn't an established template for you to go out and do it is there and and you have to create your own and then you have to own your power to do that and I found both of those things quite hard but once you do it it's very liberating isn't it yeah definitely I am um, I mean I feel quite fortunate that I've always been power hungry <laughs> 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 
So I want to use it for good reason, for good things, I think. Uh, I think everyone thinks that they're using their power for good, to be honest. Um, but, but yeah, it, 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 it is really hard, I think. But I think when I realized that like people of color were relying on me to do something or to, to you know, to to get things moving, I was like, oh, okay, like I have to, yeah. <laughs> of course. But I, I do think I do think it's really hard. I think in the last BAME online conference, um, there was a session where uh, Shay Akiwowo, who uh, founded Blitch, um, was talking about the charity structure. The structure of being a CEO was never made for Black women. So no wonder black women like really struggle in those positions. And we're going to do a big piece about this in the next conference about what it's like as a black CEO um, with a board that is basically trying to get rid of you <laughs> and isn't you know isn't able to respond to um, to like the yeah the needs of being in in that position, um, especially if you're in like, the public eye. Um, I think it's really hard, and I think the, the sector is kind of obsessed with leadership anyway. Like. They have like really weird ideas about what a leader is. Like, is it someone who does something, or is it someone who has a posi position of power for a specific period of time? Is it a job title? Is it, is it the ability to kind of you know uh, to question systems? Is it the ability to conform? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about leadership? Really, um, I think the less I worry about being a leader, the more I get done. Uh, so. The more you become one. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I really, I really like that. I think that should be on on, on a T-shirt somewhere. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the leaders and the organisations who you think are making progress in this area. And they could be in the charity sector. They, they could be outside it. Who have you seen out there who is doing some really good stuff in this space? I always find that really hard because I could say this and then their staff will be like, Martha, they've done X, Y, Z, they've got NDAs out on me. <laughs> you know? So um, I can I can in a roundabout way say some organisations that like I've enjoyed seeing like kind of take this on in quite a public way. And one is Shelter. Like I think they've spoken quite publicly about like race and how um yeah, how how race is like a huge factor in in homelessness, um, and they've done some quite explicit marketing campaigns around that, which I was impressed by. I think Birthrights have done some really amazing research um, around kind of you know uh, disparities in in maternity, and also like really like taking a stand on trans inclusion, which for me is really important. We've partnered with Black Trans Foundation at JMB Consulting. Like I care really deeply about yeah the um, issues facing black trans people in particular um there's this really amazing organization that um i saw i heard about uh, recently who i begged to be in my conference and they said yes um, which is called um the rights relation collaborative um so they are an organization i think you know working on um, kind of indigenous lines um, in Canada, and they um, get funders to apply to them, <laughs> to fund them, and they have to share their story of like how they got their money, how they're planning to kind of, you know, have a reparations-based strategy, and just like flipping that power on its head, like for me, is like incredible. It's something I really wanted to do when I was at Charity So White, but again, like it wasn't my day job, so I never really got it off the ground. Um, but yeah, like that, uh, that, like, that I found like totally inspiring. Um, and I like think the work around like decolonizing wealth that's happening like both in the states with the decolonizing wealth project, but also decolonizing economics here, um, I think are absolutely phenomenal. And they're kind of linking that um, history of colonialism and imperialism contract law, uh, because there's something that we don't really realize how much of the colonial project was really like enshrined in contract law and carried out by colonial companies rather than the state itself so it's been really hard to, to actually like you know uh, dismantle that um, you know these colonial companies now going by the name of like BP uh, having a real kind of influence on on how we live today um, so I think that yeah decolonizing economics project is really 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 amazing I'm loath to ever be like oh one organization is like doing really great work because like really they should have been doing this work anyway and before they were just doing really bad work so, <laughs> so you know um but yeah I think and I, I always give props to the National Trust for like taking a huge stand as well when they were being demonized um by the kind of right-wing press right 
um, they didn't back down. And like for me, an organization that old and that kind of, you know, institutional and colonial, like that is, that was, yeah, it was a big, it was a big moment like for me, I felt like, I think that was one of the moments where I was like, okay, like, I think it's going to happen. Like, I think we are actually going to decolonize. Um, and although they, you know, it's one small project, like it just felt big to me. Definitely. I mean, they really lived their values, didn't they? They acted in line with their their values. And it was a it was the right thing to do and it was a brave thing to do and good on them for for starting that journey. Yeah, definitely. What I think is really interesting is the way that kind of like history is reframed as like radicalism, right? So like what the National Trust really did is said, we're going to do a history exhibition exploring the history of our buildings. But because it was the history of race, empire, colonization, slavery, it suddenly became woke, radical, <laughs> terrible. But it's like a simple history project. Um, and often, you know, we can you'll find like people doing very unradical work of just simply teaching British history will be labeled as Afro-Marxists or <laughs> as, uh, as like radical, like they're troublemakers and how did we get to a point where we can't actually bear to hear our own history? Um, and what does that say about our history? You know, um, why aren't people more excited to learn about the past? I think history is fascinating. It helps to inform the present. Um, so yeah, as a big history buff myself, uh, <laughs> I rated the National Trust for that. And before we wrap up, can you tell us a bit about the BAME Online conference? Yes, I can. I can see a big smile on my face because I love it and I've got to talk about it loads recently. Um, so the BAME Online Conference uh, started in 2020 in response to that Ubele initiative report that I mentioned earlier that said nine out of 10 black and brown led organisations would close um, without urgent funding investment. Um, and I started this conference with fundraising everywhere to give organisations who were led by people of colour the tips, the tricks, the tools that they needed to do to do amazing fundraising. And when I started doing consultations with people across the sector about what they wanted to see in this conference, because I really believe in kind of being community led, I don't want to make assumptions. I've worked in white led organizations for my entire life, so well, my career. <laughs> so, uh, so I didn't want to kind of, you know, make any assumptions about what they needed, but what people really wanted to talk about was institutional racism and funding and philanthropy. So it, it's grown into this big conversation about race, racism, imperialism, charity, fundraising and philanthropy um, and it's absolutely amazing. It's his third year. Um, last year we did sessions like we need to talk about the charity industrial complex, a, brief, a not so brief history of philanthropy and imperialism which is out on our YouTube channel at the moment, how fundraising can support the anti-racist movement. We have speakers like Vule from community-centric fundraising and not non-profit uh, AF in the States, um, we have people from Charity So White, we have people from not just NCBO. Um, it was really, really amazing. Loads of grassroots organizers, community activists, academics, practitioners. It's kind of like the whole thing. And I'm, I'm really inspired by contemporary abolition practice, right? Which says that in order to kind of really change and dismantle systems of oppression, you need to have theory plus reflection plus action. Right. And it's very basic stuff, but like this is what guides me and <laughs> what should guide our anti-racist work. Uh, so we've got in the, com the conference coming up a big space for theory where we're going to talk about empire, the darker side of charity. We're going to talk about the charity industrial complex as part of the system of capitalism, people of colour being on more precarious contracts, people being dependent on funding, um, workers' rights, uh, <laughs> class within the sector. Um, so we've got that big kind of learning piece I'm going to be asking lots of leaders, lots of activists to reflect on what it actually means to do anti-racist work, um, what that actually feels like, like the learning journey that they've gone through. I mean, I've mentioned a little bit about how soul-destroying it's been for me, kind of coming to terms with the legacy of imperialism and being half white British and half colonized Nigerian. Like that tension is very, very tough for me, right? Um, but we'll be talking to leaders about the times when they've failed, uh, the times when they haven't lived up to their values of anti-racism, what they've learned from that, 
what it's been, yeah, how, yeah, the realities, I guess, of, of doing that anti-racist work. Um, we're going to have sessions on, um, there's one called Strategies for Joy that I'm going to be running, uh, which is all about how to, yeah, find joy in this work um, and always kind of, I guess, putting joy before the misery more than anything. Um, it's amazing, basically. Tickets are pay what you can, so that means that any organization, regardless of what their training budget is, any person who wants to learn more about anti-racism in the charity sector can get a ticket, but if you do have money, please pay for somebody else who cannot afford it. Um, we split the profits with Black Trans Foundation, my favorite organization in the world. Um, yeah, we've got loads of opportunities for people to sponsor, to get tickets, to get organizational tickets for their entire staff team. They just need to get in touch with me. Um, and anyone who gets a ticket gets access to the content for 30 days afterwards. I think this year is going to be amazing because I've matured <laughs> a lot since the last, the last conference. Um, I think I'm going to do less less content, more quality. Like I've been really, really selective about. I've been watching people in the sector like a creep, basically, <laughs> and really, you know, pulling together people who I've seen doing like absolutely incredible things. Um, I feel really grateful that I get to put this on like every single year, and that people still come um, because I know it's a real, real challenge. But I guess. What I hear from people of color about how important it is to them to be able to be seen uh, for the first time, to be able to just bust some jokes, like without having to have this stiff <laughs> white professionalism that you have to bring to those kinds of mainstream conferences. Um, I think it's the event of the year, at least it's for me, you know? <laughs> so, so I'm really looking forward to it. Please get tickets, it's on the 28th of July. It will be hosted by me and my best friend, Cam, who <laughs> hosts it with me every year. And this is going to be, I'm only doing three more years as the host of Game Online. I'm going to hand it over to someone else. So if you still want to see me in my heyday, <laughs> get your tickets. Amazing. Thank you. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes uh, so that people can can sign up for that. Sounds sounds fantastic. As you were saying uh, about the programme, I was thinking, gosh, I must, must come along to that. Oh my I god, make... please do. I haven't actually announced the programme yet, so you're getting a sneaky peek, but it is coming out really soon. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, that... first, the, the event of the year. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Feels like we got an exclusive on that. Thank, yeah. thank you, Martha. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely essential event for the sector uh, and vital for leaders as well, particularly when they're all looking to make progress quite rightly in this kind of work as well. Martha, thank you so much. We've learned tons from this conversation you've really made me reflect on more of the things that I should be doing uh, in this space and I just want to thank you again for doing all the brilliant pioneering work you're doing to make the sector a better place oh thanks so much thank you for having me it was lovely to talk about my journey Rain online um as you see I've had a huge smile on my face the entire time like I'm clearly very happy so. <laughs> yeah thank you health. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, uh, I have my moments, but um, with some good sleep and good uh, vegetables, I am feeling okay most days. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Martha. You. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Martha and thank you for listening to episode one of season five. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear anything that you feel that you will be different, doing differently, especially on that hybrid point. After hearing from any of our speakers from the series, you can share your plans, ideas, or questions with us on Twitter, where it starts at the top one, and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. See you next time. <laughs>